this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath turkey's high stakes presidential elections are now headed for a runoff none of the candidates could cross the 50% mark that was necessary to win the presidency in the first round which took place on may 14th now the incumbent president recep tayyip erdogan and his opponent kemal kilic darolu of the republican people's party or the chp will face each other once again on may 28th in the elections held last sunday erdogan confounded pollsters who had given the edge to kilic darolu by winning 49.51% of the vote while Kilic finished with 44.89%. The third candidate was in the phrase Sinan Ogan of the right-wing nationalist ATA alliance secured 5.17% of the vote which too was much more than what the pollster had predicted they had given him about 2 to 3% only. So Ogan could possibly play kingmaker ahead of the runoff And meanwhile in the parliamentary polls which also happened simultaneously Erdogan's party the AKP secured about 266 seats while the CHP managed 166 seats in the 600 member house with AKP being the largest party so who is the favorite uh, to win the runoff as the country prepares for it 2 weeks from now and who is the kingmaker Ogan likely to back and how did erdogan despite public anger over his regime's inept response to the february earthquake and a worsening cost of living crisis how did he manage to do so well we explore all these questions and more in this episode of the in focus podcast and with us today is stanley johnny the hindu's international affairs editor stanley thank you so much for joining us good to have you back thank you sapat So Stanley to start with are you surprised by the results of the first round well how would you interpret the vote did ideology i don't know by ideology i would i guess people would say a political islam in this case did ideology trump substantive issues such as the economy corruption governance etc yeah to begin with i wasn't surprised i wasn't surprised because i think uh, all the opinion polls suggested that actually on the other side all the opinion polls suggested that Kamal was actually leading and Erdogan was trailing. And uh, let's make it clear, this was Erdogan's weakest moment. Because, you know, in the last 20 years of history, he was the prime minister and then from two, 2018 onwards, he's been the president under the new constitution. And he went to the polls when Turkey was struggling with enormous economic issues, inflation, hit 86% last year which is now you know settling around 40% still high it's hit the middle classes very badly and the turkish currency has lost uh, some 60% of its value against the dollar in the last 2 years and if you look at the charts the macroeconomic picture foreign investors are fleeing the country and its current account deficit is ballooning uh, so the country is going through uh you know major economic issues this is not the case in 2005 or 2008 when erdogan was the prime minister when turkish economy was relatively doing very well it had lifted the middle classes our economy was growing there were economic opportunities etc etc now the situation is completely different and secondly in february there was this 
devastating earthquake in which some 50,000 people were killed only in Turkey. And the earthquake, you know, triggered criticisms about, first of all, the government's, Erdogan government's response to the calamity and also its building permits, etc., etc. So the earthquake actually put Erdogan in a difficult situation. And third, you had a joint opposition candidate for the first time. Six opposition parties came together and fielded Kamal, who was, you know, in contrast with Erdogan. Erdogan had this hype around him. He is, you know, the de facto sultan within courts. On the other side, Kamal portrayed himself as a mild-mannered, you know, simple guy who promised to restore within courts Turkish democracy and fix its economic issues, etc. So the contrast was there. Uh, you know, there was, there was a sharp contrast between Erdogan and his brand of politics and Kamal, who was also supported by the joint opposition. So clearly Erdogan was on a weak wicket. But what the election actually tells us is that despite these problems, this brand of politics that remains still strong in Turkey, which doesn't mean that it hasn't taken a beating, it has, because if you compare the election results with that of 2018, in 2018, Erdogan won the presidential election in the first round. And the gap between him and his closest rival was 22 percentage points. And now, Erdogan was not just forced to go into the runoff, the gap was, you know, just five points. So, Kemal actually came closer to unseating Erdogan. But he failed to unseat. That's the point. So despite the challenges he faced, Erdogan and his brand of politics still remains strong. So my, if you ask for a single takeaway from the election, I would say that Erdogan was humbled in the election. In a sense, his hold on power has been weakened, but not broken. Right. So when you say his brand of politics has become a little weaker, what do you mean by his brand of politics? Do you mean uh, political Islam? Do you mean nationalism? Like what exactly does it mean? It's it's a blend of political Islam, nationalism, uh, because, uh, you know, political Islam is, of course, Erdogan's main ideological plank, right? His party, Justice and Development Party, is ideologically linked to the Muslim Brotherhood. And Muslim Brotherhood champions political Islam. And they're just look at how they operate. Their political Islam is not the jihadist type of political Islam. Jihadists do not believe in elections. They are very, they are inherently violent. Both their means and goals are, uh, you know, linked to violence. And they, what they want to do is to create, you know, attack societies, create ruptures, and exploit the civil strife and gain power through their violent actions. Jihadists. But the Muslim Brotherhood, they reinvented themselves, whether it is the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt, because Mohamed Morsi uh, became the first elected president of Egypt after the Arab Spring protest, who was toppled by Sisi, who was still president of Egypt. So Stanley, that's a very interesting nuanced point you're making here. So I was just wondering, so when, when you say, uh, when anybody says political Islam, uh, generally among the lay uh, listeners, what comes to mind is uh, jihad and jihadist kind of... Uh, ideology and violence. But you're saying Turkey's political Islam, like the Muslim Brotherhood, is very different from that. Like, w- what does it actually mean? Can you unpack this uh, stream of, or substream of, what, what do they actually, how do they go about uh, their political work? Yeah, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood type of political Islam is not the jihadist type of political Islam. I would tell you the difference. I mean, I know Muslim Brotherhood is called a terrorist organization in several places, 
and they are anti-secular. There is no doubt about it. If you approach the Muslim Brotherhood from a secular point of view, uh, you have to, I mean, you can attack their ideology. But compared to jihadists, I mean, jihadists, Al-Qaeda doesn't have to stand in an election. Al-Qaeda won't win an election, right? Osama bin Laden never cared about popularity. But when it comes to the Muslim Brotherhood, whether it is, that's what I am saying, whether it is Mohammed Morsi or Anahda party of Tunisia uh, or the brothers elsewhere, even Hamas, you know, the last election Palestinian territories had, I think it was in 2005 or 2006, pardon me. But in the last election, Hamas swept the elections of the Palestinian territories. And ever since, nobody bothered to, you know, hold elections in Palestine because Hamas would win again. So the Muslim Brotherhood brand of political Islam, they go to elections. They seek public approval. They seek legitimacy through the electoral process. And then... They, through, they, they actually capture state institutions through this legitimate process and try to bend them. How do they bend them? Because, you know, like the, the best example is Turkey. Erdogan went to elections. He won public approval. He became the prime minister. He turned around the AK party into the most powerful political machinery in Turkey, which was not the case in the 1990s, right? Who was powerful in Turkey? The Kemalist establishment. On the one side, you have CHP, which is the secular party, and then you have the generals, the military. You look at Erdogan's term over the last 20 years. So he tamed both. He attacked the Kemalist establishment. He presented himself as an outsider, and as, as, a, as an Islamist outsider. He attacked the Kemalist consensus, which was rooted in uh, secularism. So, I mean, Erdogan's point of view was that he was, uh, you know, he, he, he offered a new interpretation of the idea of Turkey, which is majority is. Sunni Islam, and he backed resurrecting this Turkey's Islamist identity because Turkey is, it was, the crux of the Ottoman Empire. So Erdogan sold this past glory to his base, to his conservative base. So why, Erdo why Erdogan is distancing Turkey from the West? Because you see a lot of uh, noises in Turkey's foreign policy. And you can also see the Western media was collectively attacking Erdogan and predicting his uh, defeat in the elections. The uh, Economist had a cover story calling it the world's most important election of this year. So the reason is that Erdogan, instead of the Kemalist establishment, which identified itself as a close ally of the West, Erdogan is selling a different narrative to, its, to his voters. He said Turkey was the center of the world. You know, the Ottomans ruled the world for 500 years. So he wants to turn Turkey into, again, into a major global power. That is his foreign policy vision. And his social ideas are rooted in Islamic conservatism, not in Kemalist secularism. So he bats for, uh, you know, religious symbols, you wearing religious symbols in public. And he is also attacking LGBTQ people. He did that right before the uh, elections. And he is also saying that Islam is under threat from the West. So Erdogan's you know, idea is to resurrect this Islamic identity of Turkey, which is rooted in its you know, uh, Ottoman imperial glory. This is his brand of politics. So yes, this is within the borders of the Muslim Brotherhood type of political Islamism. And what Erdogan has done in Turkey's context is to blend it with Turkish nationalism. Because Muslim Brotherhood is actually a transnational organization. It's not a nationalist organization, right? Because the Brotherhood was formed in the 1920s, and you have Brotherhood branches all across the world. 
What Erdogan did in Turkey's context is to blend it with Turkish nationalism, which is rooted in its past imperial glory, Ottoman glory. And he also promised welfare because on the other side, on the other side Erdogan, he, right before the elections, he promised housing uh, for the poor. Uh, and he also uh, doubled the salaries of the government workers. Uh, you know, th there is a lot of welfare measures as well. So I would say political Islam, well, public welfare, this past imperial glory, Ottoman uh, imperial nostalgia, less hyper-nationalism. So you put everything together, you will get to the Erdogan brand of politics because one of his allies of the AK party is a far-right uh, nationalist party. Uh, so this brand of politics, I think, still remains strong in Turkey. Right. Would you call it, uh, say, broadly speaking, uh, Sunni Islam majoritarianism? It is. It is. Right. Now, coming back to the uh, electoral uh, process, uh, Stanley, now, we have see, we have read a lot about Erdogan's authoritarian, authoritarian streak and his control over the media and so on. So, do you think uh, this element, this control over the media and, uh, and sections of the judiciary, etc., did it queer the pitch in his favor in these elections? It must have played a part, definitely, because there was no level playing field in the elections. Uh, all the major media houses are owned by Erdogan's friends, uh, his corporate friends. And, uh, uh, you know, there were reports that uh, the opposition uh, campaign was not highlighted enough. And Erdogan himself, his government itself, had cracked down on the media, on the free media or media critical of, uh, you know, um, his regime. So, and several journalists have been jailed during his uh, period of time. So... On the one side, Erdogan has done two things. On the one side, he has threatened and muscled critical media. And on the other side, he has cultivated uh, psychophantic, uh, a new uh, host of, you know, a new group of media houses that would only uh, report good things about the government. So clubbing these two, you have a favorable media environment for the government. So that AK party or Erdogan can control the flow of information. This has been engineered over the past many years. You can see that you go and read any Turkish, at least an English Turkish newspaper, it is very hard to see uh, articles critical of the government. Uh, and TV, I am heard, is worse uh, in Turkey. There seem to be a lot of parallels here between Turkey and India. I don't know if, if just me or <laughs> that they seem to be jumping out from what you are saying. No, a lot of, there is a lot of talk about it. At least in the media space, you can see, I mean, in terms of television media, it's hardly a secret. You can see that. There is also a lot of explorations are happening, right? Academic writings are also happening, comparing the situation in India and that of Turkey. But I think Erdogan has gone a step ahead in a sense. Erdogan has managed to alter the constitution. Erdogan has managed to give himself more powers, right? And he, he was the prime minister, now he's the president under the new constitution. So I think Erdogan has gone a step ahead in Turkey. Right. And I hope we don't catch up with him ever. Now, coming back to the parliamentary uh, side of the elections, Stanley. So, the AKP has secured 266. CHP has got 166. Uh, the parliament strength is 600, which means the halfway mark is 301. We know both of them have got their alliance partners and so on. So, who do you think will have control over the parliament with these numbers? Can the CHP uh, cobble together a coalition that could cross 300 or that's out of the question? Uh, that's out of the question. I think AKP would AKP's coalition would 
be in a comfortable majority if you put AKP and the nationalist movement together. Because the nationalists have got 50 seats. AKP has 260. So, which means I think they are crossing the majority. So, even if CHP, the Republicans, put together all the other opposition parties, they will not have enough uh, numbers within parliament. So, which means parliament is already in Erdogan's control. And in the presidential election, it's going into the runoff. And in, the, in your introduction, you talked about uh, the third candidate who has got around uh, 5% votes. So he himself is, you know, basically a nationalist supported by a right-wing base. Uh, so I don't think that uh, he's going to support uh, Kemal in this election. So which means Erdogan in the, in the runoff, Erdogan clearly has an edge. He has won parliament. He is ahead in the uh, presidential election. And it is difficult, it would be very difficult for Kamala and the opposition parties to overcome the challenge Erdogan has posed because the momentum is on his side. Right, Stanley, uh, before you go further, I just wanted to cl- uh, seek a clarification from you on this Sinan Ogan, the third candidate's uh, support. You, you rightly pointed out that he's a, he's a right-wing nationalist with, a, with the, that kind of a support base. And he has said, uh, in, in, so far as one could interpret what he has said, he has said that terrorism is his red line and he would support whoever is more likely uh, to crack down on terrorism. And political uh, writers and observers have sort of inferred his reference to terrorism as meaning Kurdish uh, activists and so on. Now, you said that uh, Kemal is not likely to get his support because Erdogan is more right-wing than him and so on. But Erdogan, interestingly, has received support from Hudapar which is a predominantly Kurdish political Islamist party. And he's got, I think, three uh, MPs elected uh, from this party as part of his alliance. Uh, so that would sort of render him slightly dodgy as somebody uh, Ogan could support. But then at the same time, we are also seeing that Kemal's candidacy was backed by the HDP, which is considered close to PKK. So it looks like he cannot really back either of them if he's serious about what he says about uh, terrorism being a red line, because both the candidates have got uh, like solid links with uh, Kurdish representatives and political forces. Yeah, but I think uh, he would see HDP as a more potent threat to his ideas of, uh, you know, uh, Turkey, because uh, Erdogan wants to wanted to ban HDP, right? Uh, that was one of uh, his campaign promises, because he calls them terrorists, uh, saying that they have links to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK. And uh, HDP's leader is already in jail. Erdogan put him in jail. Demitra, Salahidin Demirtas. Uh, so, when it comes to Sinan Ogan, I think HDP would his red line would be his red line. So he would look at the opposition, he would look at Kamal's campaign, and then he would see uh, HDP in it, which means he would see uh, role of the PKK. And then I don't think his supporters would uh, be ready to vote for Kamal because all the anti-Kurdish political factions in Turkey they see HDP as a frontal organization of the PKK. So Erdogan is trying to capitalize this. You know, Erdogan himself, he pictures himself as a nationalist. And for the nationalists, the Kurdish problem, you know, is one of their paramount issues. So I was actually surprised when HDP and CHP came together in this election because CHP, the Republicans, had founded 
the Kurds in the past. They were no better. It was actually Erdogan who offered a ceasefire in 2003 after he became the prime minister. It was Erdogan who offered a peace process with the, with the Kurds in the early 2000s. But then he also changed his track. He is now uh, on an all-out war, in an all-out war with the Kurds. But now, under Kemal, the CHP is offering more engagement with the Kurds, uh, which is actually a promising move. But on the other side, the hardcore nationalists, they see Kurds as still a problem. And HTP for them is a red line. Erdogan tried to capitalize this by attacking HTP, calling for banning HTP. And Erdogan has also put, Salahuddin Demetras was one of the early presidential candidates. And he's now in jail. He's been in jail for years. So uh, I think Erdogan would use this. He would exploit this. And he is in a better chance to appease uh, Ogan, saying that I am the real guy who is fighting terrorists, who is fighting Kurdish extremists. So you should support him. I think his, Ogan's uh, supporters would also be happy to vote for Erdogan in the runoff rather than voting for Kamar. Right. Now, when I mean, you spoke earlier about Erdogan having a momentum going forward, having won 49.5% of the vote, and also is better placed to win Ogan's support. But there is still a gap of about two weeks uh, between the first round, which happened on May 14th, and the second round. And I know there is still all those things you mentioned about the economy, which is going on, the after effects of the earthquake, which are still there. So, do you think this is a long enough gap for public mood, perceptions, narratives to shift uh, such that the two candidates stack up sort of maybe in a different way than they did on May 14th? And secondly, also, I mean, we know that uh, Kemal is rather good at making deals. I mean, one of the parties which were part of the table of six, uh, they sort of drifted away. He got them back. Uh, He seems to be a good deal maker, negotiator. Is there any way you think you can pull off an upset using this two weeks uh, breather, so to speak, to work in his favor, or is that just wishful thinking? Uh, so, I mean, it's we, we, we can't say with certainty, definitely, because uh, anything can happen in two weeks. But if you look at the results of the first round, and if you look at how the Turkish voters responded to Erdogan, I think the chances for Kamal to pull off a victory in the runoff are very slim. Because as I pointed out earlier, Erdogan went to the first round of the elections at the weakest moment of his rule over Turkey. And still, the opposition who came together, six parties came together and fielded a relatively popular, acceptable candidate. Still, they failed to Okay, they managed to push him into a runoff, but they failed to take a lead. Which means, I think, Erdogan still remains popular. He commands loyalty. And his brand of politics remains deeply entrenched in Turkish society. You consider these factors, and you also consider the Sinan Ogan factor, which we have already discussed, who got 5% vote, which nobody expected, apparently. That shows among the right-wing nationalists, Sinan Ogan also has a base. And considering the fact that this base will also go in favor of Erdogan, I think it is it would be very difficult for Kamal to pull off a victory against him in the runoff. Right. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's a sober assessment, uh, Stanley. Now, I have a hypothetical question for you. It's not maybe it's not a very serious question. And I was just wondering, you know, in the run-up uh, to the elections on May 14th, something sometime in March, 
when it was clear that uh, Kemal would be the candidate, one of the table of six, one of the parties, in fact, the second biggest party in that coalition, they walked out of the coalition saying, uh, you know, Kemal is the wrong candidate, he's not the most popular. And they wanted uh, Ekrem Imamoglu, you know, the Istanbul mayor, to be the, contest, uh, to be the candidate. Do you think if he had, uh, I don't know if he could have uh, stood because there was some kind of a criminal case filed against him. I don't know. Do you think but he, if he had stood, maybe the results would have been different in the first round? We can't say. It's a hypothetical situation. We can't say. Yeah, uh, he was also a very popular candidate. But Kamal, I think as a candidate, he was, he did well. He put the parties together. He held them together. You know, as we pointed out, he's a good deal maker. He talked to them. And he offered a contrasting vision to the Turkish voters. And he has uh, basically revitalized the opposition. Uh, you know, and because CHP suffered several defeats in the past many years after Erdogan's rise. And the opposition, even in 2018, the opposition was divided and uh, weaker. Now you see at least a united and more potent opposition bloc. So Kamal himself is, I would say that he, is, uh, he put up a very good fight. And, uh, you know, forcing Erdogan into a runoff itself is... Uh, you know, an, ach- an achievement for the opposition. But just that, you know, they couldn't unseat him or rather they are not able to do that at this point of time. But Erdogan should also realize that, you know, his politics remains strong, but it is also aging because Erdogan going into the second round would have been unimaginable in 2018 or uh, prior to that. So he should also realize that there is, uh, you know, his hold is getting weaker. So, irrespective of the candidates, whether whether a different candidate would have unseated him, I would say that uh, Kamal, as an opposition candidate, did well in putting up a good fight and uh, raising a major challenge to Erdogan's hold on Turkey. Right. I think all all credit, full credit to Kemal for uh, uniting the opposition and being able to put up such a good fight. I mean, as you rightly pointed out, in 2018, Erdogan won the first round. I think the margin was some 20-20% plus. And here he could not win the first turn and it's just a margin of 4 to 5%. Now, one final question uh, before we wind up, Stanley. Very quickly, let's say Erdogan wins as he's most likely to on May 28th. What happens to Turkey domestically and geopolitically in the region? So, domestically, we can expect that Erdogan, if he wins again, he will double down on his current policies of Islamizing society and, uh, you know, more oppression of dissent, voices of dissent, or crackdown on the remaining uh, critical voices. You can expect all this. And also, he might also try to fix the economy because he knows that it is because of the economic problems that he is facing the kind of challenges he is facing now. So he could focus on fixing the economic problems on the one side and on the other side, deepening his authority over Turkey or Islamization of Turkey, Uh, you know. One, one, one of the points we forgot to discuss while discussing about Islamization was Hagia Sophia, which was a museum, uh, which was originally a church, then a mosque under the Ottomans, and then a museum, and Erdogan turned it again to a mosque like the Ottomans did. So this, these are the signals he is uh, sending to the people. So these measures, I think he would continue at home. Repression, maybe more welfare, trying to fix the economy, Islamization of society. And geopolitically, see, these, these two are connected. Erdogan's foreign policy is linked to his vision. And that vision is to transform Turkey into a major player. For that, 
he has taken, he has moved Turkey away from the orbit of the West while being a NATO member and cultivated strong ties with Russia as well as Iran. And even in West Asia, in the Gulf, he has made deep inroads in Qatar. So he is building parallel networks in West Asia. He wants Turkey to become a major player in West Asia. And also in the Mediterranean region, where he has disputes with Greece, right? So he he sees Turkey, which is which geographically one of the most important countries in the region, you know, sits right at the meeting point of uh, Europe and uh, West Asia. Uh, so uh, his vision is to transform Turkey again into a major global power. And uh, I think his foreign policy in that sense, he is doing a lot of balancing, you know, and he would continue to do that. Uh, he hasn't joined sanctions against Russia. Russian companies have set up places in Turkey after the war began, uh, for which he's, he continues to face criticism in the West. Uh, but I, I don't think that there would be any change. He would continue this balancing act of its foreign policy uh, and try to play a much bigger role in West Asia, as well as in ties with Russia and the West. While in, in, the, in domestic politics, he would continue uh, the same policies he has been championing over the last 20 years. Right. Uh, we'll wind up right here, Stanley. So thank you so much uh, for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and observations on the Turkish elections. Hopefully, uh, we'll come back and do a post-mortem once we know the final results after May. Thank you so much, uh, Stanley. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.